Well, good morning again. I'm, I'm Dustin Martin. I'm a deacon here at Brush Prairie. And in case you haven't heard, Pastor Bob and Miss Julie are out on a much-deserved holiday. So this means Ryan has been holding things down for us around here. Uh, so if you see him, be sure to give him some encouragement and remind him how much you personally appreciate him and his family and all they do to serve this body here at BP Church. Amen? And also, if you, if you enjoy Ryan's preaching as much as I do, don't worry. He'll be back up here next week. All right, let's, let's pray, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We're sorry for all the sin that lives in our hearts. We're sorry for all the things we did this past week that didn't bring you honor or glory. For the things we said, for the things we thought, for the things we did, for the things we didn't do. For the areas of our life and the parts of our heart that we've kept from you closed off from your love and your light. Lord, thank you for still loving us despite ourselves. As we open your word together, we ask that you stir up our hearts in preparation to receive whatever aspect of your truth it is that you have for us this morning. Lord, I ask that as we labor through this passage together that you please guide my tongue and and guard their ears so anything that anyone walks away with today is from you and not from me. Lord, speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 15 through 27. That's where we'll focus our attention today, but we'll, we'll do a, a light survey of the whole chapter, but, but the emphasis will be 15 to 27. It's on page 877 in your pew Bible. And when you found it, let's, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come. Follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Thus saith the Lord. You may be seated. Todd, let's throw that first slide up. Mission impossible. Your mission, should you choose to accept it. Now, most of us are probably familiar with this pop culture phrase, but just in case you're not, it dates back to a TV show that ran in the late 80s called, or 60s, I'm sorry, called Mission Impossible. Now, I wasn't there for all of that, but, but I've heard it was pretty good. 
Anyhow, the, the episodes would, would usually have this scene where the team leader would receive a tape before each assignment, and the, this phrase was, was always part of the message, your mission, should you choose to accept it. Now, today, Mission Impossible has grown into a wildly successful franchise, and, well, I, I guess you could say I'm, I'm not exactly the world's biggest Tom Cruise fan. But I, I still like that phrase. I like that phrase because it begs a question. Who? Who chooses to accept an impossible mission? Have you ever accepted an impossible mission? If so, how come? What was it about that particular mission at that point in your life that justified the risk, knowing it could cost you everything. Still, despite the odds, despite the costs, you went for it. But why? Why did you still go for it? Was it because of your faith in God? If so, I bet when you accepted that mission, you were in a sense going for broke and placing all your chips on verse 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. As believers, we like that verse, don't we? Even non-believers like that verse. It's a good verse. Just about everybody has placed some chips on that verse at one time or another, even if they didn't believe in God. Most people don't mind asking God for a little help when it seems advantageous and convenient to do so. I mean, if asking God for help doesn't cost you anything, why not, right? In fact, that's that's exactly what we saw play out in the passage we just read, isn't it? The rich young ruler sure liked the idea of eternal life, but he actually got close enough to that deal to, to read the fine print, didn't he? He realized there's a catch. There's a cost. But wait, I thought the rich young ruler was rich. He was. And that's the point. The fact that he's wealthy is is the the treasure chest of irony that contains the key to understanding this whole passage. It's not about money at all. It's definitely about the cost of eternal life, but it literally has nothing to do with money. It wasn't a question of could he pay it. It was a question of would he pay it. The mission was impossible, and he chose not to accept it. It was indeed a cost, but he wasn't willing to pay it. That's what this passage is about. The heart of the lesson is that as sinners, we must come to the point of understanding the cost required to receive eternal life. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Listen to me, folks. Salvation involves more than simply acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God the second person of the Trinity, and the Savior of the world. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not downplaying the importance of having a right understanding and a proper assessment of who Jesus is. Not at all. What I am saying is that if an honest, sincere acknowledgement of the Savior is not also accompanied by a contrite and convicted heart that's also assessed its own proud and sinful nature and has come to the point of seeing their sin the way God sees it, as an abomination, and sees anything they think they have to offer God the same way God sees those things, as filthy rags, then that person is still dead in their trespasses and sins. 
Acknowledging Jesus as the Savior of the world is a great place to start. But set the world aside for a second and really listen to what I'm saying here. If you aren't seeking an audience with Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and outright refusing to bring anything to the table other than your own humility and obedience, then I'm afraid the chances are you've yet to settle your account with God. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been coming to church or how many Sunday school classes you've taught or sermons you've preached or verses you've memorized. It doesn't matter. The rich young ruler was crushing it in these types of categories. Yet still, the price was too high, and he simply wasn't willing to pay the cost. And when we stop to think about the cost of loving God by Following Jesus, the Bible doesn't really leave us in a position of speculating about what that means. It's all over the place. In fact, we don't even need to leave the gospel we've been studying to find it. Let's, let's stay right here in Luke and see what Jesus has to say about the costs of following him. Luke 14, 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So therefore, Luke 14, 33, so therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But wait, Dustin, you just said it didn't have anything to do with money. And then you immediately show us a few passages that sure sounds like Jesus is talking about money. (laughs) You're not wrong. He's talking about money. But I'm not wrong either. Luke 9, 62. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand on the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, We're getting closer to figuring out what this whole encounter is really about. All right, so let's let's back up and set the text so we can start working through it together. Uh, Todd, if you want to throw up that next slide. Here's what we need to know. In terms of timeline, Jesus is at the tail end of his ministry, and and this is essentially the beginning of the end, so to speak. He's been ministering in in Perea, maybe a little hard to see, which is the purple area. You see there on the map, just, just east of Judea on the opposite side of the Jordan River. And verses 31 and 35 tell us Jesus is working his way west through Jericho before making the ascent up to Jerusalem for the final time to suffer and die and rise again. So we know where he is. We know where he's going. We know the route he's taken to get there, and we even know what he's going to do once he arrives. Okay, fine. But far more helpful for our purpose this morning isn't just where Jesus is geographically, but what he's preaching about in light of what he's getting ready to go do. That next slide, Todd. He's on his way to the cross. He's on the most impossible mission of all time to defeat sin and death. He's on his way to die for the sins of the world. He's on his way to die and exchange his perfect life for our sinful, far from perfect lives, which in turn provides the atonement through which we obtain eternal life. In other words, he's going to make the impossible possible. He's talking about the kingdom of God as he's literally on his way to usher in the kingdom of God. 
talk about being heavenly minded. I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't have ADD. That boy was focused. All right, so we know where Jesus is on the map. Now, now let's find out where he is in the text. This conversation about the coming kingdom got kicked off back in the last chapter. In Luke 17, 20, some Pharisees started asking Jesus about when the kingdom of God would come. And Jesus obviously seizes the opportunity and starts to teach. We get the sense from the the flow of the text that the lesson carries all the way through to the end of chapter 17 and pushes right on through into chapter 18. And we can see the kingdom of God still being talked about as we pick up the story in verse 15. We know the topic hasn't changed because of what we see Jesus say in verses 16 and 17. I'll, I'll read 15 through 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called, to them, called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. See, he's still pushing on the same lesson he started back on in 1720. He's still going. He's still preaching. And now, like the master he is, he's using whatever it is that's going on around him as an object lesson to drive home his point. But why kids? Why randomly mention children? What did, what did Jesus mean in verse 17 when he said, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. There's a passage in Matthew that, that comes to mind. Matthew 18, 1 through 3. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I've, I've actually heard people use this verse as justification for not engaging in any type of serious study of God's word. Because they want to maintain a childlike faith as though that's some kind of virtue or sign of Christian maturity. It's not. There's a difference between being childlike and childish. God isn't childish. But the Bible clearly calls us to have a childlike faith, but that shouldn't be translated as childish. When we're called to have a childlike faith, it doesn't mean we're supposed to have a simplistic faith or an uninformed faith or an unintelligible faith. What it means is that we're supposed to have the same kind of confidence in our heavenly father that we did in our earthly guardians when we were young. That we must trust him implicitly for everything we need, including eternal life. When I I leave for work in the morning, my five-year-old daughter, Jo, doesn't fully understand everything I have to do when I leave the house every morning to go to work. She just trusts me to get up and go do it. She has no idea how much I make or what everything costs. She just knows dad is going to take care of her. She believes that. She trusts me, and consequently, she doesn't worry about those things. Remember all the way back in Luke 12, verse 22, when Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Can you see it? Joe doesn't approach me the way we're getting ready to see the rich young ruler approach Jesus. She doesn't come to me and ask, Daddy, what must I do to live in your house? She doesn't try to get up and go to work with me. 
She doesn't try to go out and get a job to help cover the cost of running a household. Joe loves princesses, but she doesn't concern herself with what it might cost to run a kingdom, let alone God's kingdom. She doesn't try to kick in her own money to help pay for groceries or clothes because she's worried about what she's going to eat or wear. Those concerns don't occupy the thoughts of her heart. She knows dad loves her and will provide for her, and she rests in that. That's the difference between kids and the rich young ruler. He thought he had something to offer God. Kids don't think that way. They know they've got nothing to offer, and if they need something, if you've ever had kids, now I don't have five or six like Tyler, but if you've ever had kids, you know this, they aren't afraid to ask. And, and while we're on the topic of asking, I want us to look backwards for a second. Uh, you may want to open your Bibles, but look backwards for a second at verses 1 and 7 before we just press on into 18. Open your Bibles for me because there's a couple things back there I, I want to point out that I, I think might be helpful for us to see. I want us to take note of how this whole chapter opens up. It's kind of weird. The chapter starts with Jesus encourage, essentially encouraging us to ask. Remember, the context here is when to expect the kingdom of God to come. So let's look, look at Luke 18.1 together. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. The Bible teaches us explicitly and implicitly that prayer should encompass every aspect of our life. But an often overlooked element of prayer is praying for the Lord's return. And that's a prayer that all believers should pray and pray persistently. And confidently asking Jesus to come back. We see the apostle John doing it in Revelation 22.20 when he writes, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It's those kinds of prayers that really make up the substance of the parable Jesus goes on to tell in verses 2 through 6 about the judge and the persistent widow. The widow has nothing to entice the judge with, but still she asks. Despite having nothing to offer and no way to pay or cover the cost, she asks. Repeatedly she asks, and eventually the hard-hearted judge gives in and gives her what she needs. And what does Jesus say in verse 7? He says, and will not God, who's not hard-hearted by the way, Give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? Jesus himself tells us in verse 7, ask, beg, cry to him day and night. Ask him. Ask him to do for you that which you cannot do for yourself. Our good works will never be sufficient to bring about the kingdom or adequate to atone for our sins or capable of satisfying the discontentment in our heart. The one that needs to be rescued can't be the rescuer. We can't save ourselves. That's an impossible mission. But if we place our faith in Christ, if we lean in and ask him for what we need, we can enjoy eternal life right now. Don't put your justification in a safe deposit box like it's this insurance policy that you're going to need later when Jesus comes back or when you die or whatever you think later means. Eternal life is available today. In fact, 
we could easily swap out justice for eternal life in verse 7. And nobody would accuse us of playing loose with the text because without being justified before God, you will not enter the kingdom and thus you will not receive eternal life. Matthew 5.20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Ultimately, what that verse means is we only have two options. Live a perfect life or repent. If you're willing to repent, eternal life is available right now. And being justified by grace through faith is the means by which you can obtain it. You can't pay for it. But you can ask for it. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? So either we ask God to justify us or we try to justify ourselves. That's it. Those are our options. But what does self-justification look like? Well, Jesus tells us in the very next parable he gives about the Pharisee and the tax collector. But keep in mind here that Jesus hasn't let up. He's still teaching about the coming kingdom and the true cost of eternal life. Luke 18.9 says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. We We don't have time to break down this parable today, but there's something here worth taking note of before we make our way back to the rich young ruler. What you'll notice when you read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is the Pharisee doesn't ask God for anything. Instead, he rattles off a list of his accomplishments, highlighting all the things that he thinks he's bringing to the relationship, if you can even call it a relationship. So now let's contrast the Pharisee with what we see the tax collector doing. He asks fervently, with humility and zeal, beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's asking God to do something for him. And what happens? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. There's that word again. Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How many times in your life Out of pride, nothing else, just pride, good old-fashioned pride. How many times in your life have you not asked for something you needed? When you stop to think about it, it's really kind of crazy. All the ways we'll let pride wreck our life, isn't it? Ask. Why is that so hard for us sometimes? Just ask. But it is hard, isn't it? We might even say it's impossible at times. I I, I so want to pick on my kids right now and say that in my house, it sometimes feels like it's easier to get a bill through Congress than it is to get one of my kids to ask their siblings for forgiveness so they might be justified in our family court. But that wouldn't be fair because the truth is sometimes it's every bit as difficult for me to ask Allie for forgiveness, and I'm grown. I should know better. I love Jesus with all my heart, and still there's times when I can't seem to humble myself. Even crazier and more humiliating to admit is when the tables are turned. What about when Allie offends me and she finds herself in the position of needing to ask me for forgiveness? I confess, I don't always want to forgive her. 
This is exactly why it's so important to not only build your marriages on Jesus, but also to rehearse the gospel every single day. Because when I think about everything God has forgiven me for, how in the world could I not forgive my wife when she asks me? You fool. I know. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. All right. I think we got our bags packed. So let's go catch up with Jesus and the rich young ruler and see what they're talking about. I bet it has something to do with eternal life. What do you think? All right, so we're going to back up to 15, and we're going to read through 19 just to get our bearings again. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, you may or may not care, but there's a bit of a debate in some theological circles about how the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and if he's sincere or not. I don't know. I've yet to take a position on that. In fact, I don't, I don't know if I can even articulate why it matters. Is it, is it even important that we get the answer to that question right? Maybe? Probably? I don't, I don't know. I don't think it changes the moral of the story, though. Because either way, there's still something here for us to see. Remember the Pharisee from a few verses ago, how he was rattling off his resume to God? Well, in a minute, we're going to see the rich young ruler essentially doing the same thing, but there's a difference between the two of them. The rich young ruler seems to recognize a need where the Pharisee comes off as completely ignorant to his need for much of anything at all, really, especially a Savior. He studied the Torah. He knows God's law. He's probably even invented some of his own rules just in case God needed some help. And, and from an external obedience perspective, he probably kept most of them. He's moral. He's righteous. And in his mind, he's set. But for whatever reason, the rich young ruler at least seems to understand that something is missing in his life. Almost 20 years ago, back in June of 2005, Steve Croft, a correspondent for 60 Minutes, was interviewing Tom Brady, who at that time was still playing for the New England Patriots. Now, I'm not, I'm not thinking anyone needs a refresher on who Tom Brady is. But, but just in case, he's probably the greatest quarterback of all time. And some might argue one of the greatest athletes of all time. Anyhow, Steve was talking to Tom about his success on and off the field. And here's what Tom Brady had to say. Brady, and I quote, There's times where I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? Croft, what's the answer? Brady, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. My oldest son is, 
named after a guy by the name of Blaise Pascal. He was a 17th century inventor, philosopher, theologian, and Christian apologist. And here's a quote from his, his book, Ponce. Todd, if you can throw that up, which was published in 1670. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. You see, unlike the Pharisee, the rich young ruler was conscious of this idea that Pascal was tapping into. And it's the exact same reality Tom Brady was trying to articulate. Something's missing and he knows it. A little later in the passage, we see Peter flipping out because he still isn't fully understanding what Jesus is saying about the cost of following him. And in verse 28, we see Peter being all like, but Jesus... See, we've left our homes and followed you. And Jesus says to him in verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more. Listen close here. In this time and in the age to come, eternal life. You see, eternal life isn't just something we're waiting to experience. It's an already not yet kind of a thing. We're absolutely waiting and ought to be praying for Christ to return and establish his literal physical kingdom. But Jesus is alive right now, sitting on his throne and ruling in the hearts of those that belong to him. The elect are his temple and consequently the spiritual life can be experienced right now. And that's the very thing that was missing in the rich young ruler's heart. The joy that comes from surrendering to Christ. Peace and contentment. He didn't have it. He had everything else. The Super Bowl wasn't a thing yet, but the rich young ruler wasn't lacking in accomplishments. By the world standard, the rich young ruler had it going on. He had everything. He was young, he was powerful, he was rich, and he was empty. That's the whole reason he ran upon Jesus in the first place. He recognized his need. That's what's so interesting about the rich young ruler. Here we've got a seemingly important person seeking an audience with the most important person in the entire universe. And he's got the presence of mind to ask the most important question that could possibly be asked. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, But why did he have to ask that way? He was so close, right? If it was a movie, you'd want to yell at the screen right now, why? Why did you have to ask it that way? Did you hear it? Did you catch it? What must I do? What must I do? A few words later, he says, to inherit. You don't do anything to inherit. Like, have you even thought about what you're saying? The Christian life isn't about you. It's not about how obedient you can be or about how your 
about your accomplishments or what you've done. It's about what Jesus has done for you. Christianity isn't about do, it's about done. The rich young ruler knew the right question to ask, but he was lacking the proper heart posture from which to ask it. He couldn't seem to take his eyes off himself to fix his gaze on Jesus. He wanted to know what he could do. He was too proud to ask Jesus for what he truly needed. He just wanted to huddle up with Jesus for a minute. Find out what play was missing from his playbook so he could get back out on the field and win that Super Bowl. But as we're about to see, it doesn't work that way with Jesus. We don't approach Jesus on our terms. Jesus is never going to allow you to bolt him on to whatever works-based system you've got going as though he's just there to help prop you up when things get hard. The rich young ruler rode up on Jesus and, and basically asked him for a kickstand. And Jesus is like, kickstand? Son, you don't even know how to ride a bike. In fact, that mindset couldn't be Further from the truth, if we're going to be real about it, not only is God not a prop, he's actually in the business of knocking props out from underneath us until he's got our attention. Remember Job? I want you to think about your own life right now. Are there any areas where God is trying to get your attention? Let's keep going and see exactly how Jesus fields this evangelistic encounter, 18 through 23. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept for my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. The rich young ruler clearly isn't asking in the same spirit that we saw the widow or the Pharisee ask. He's not asking the way children ask for things. Even at the tail end of chapter 18, we see more of the same thing. There's a blind man asking for something, and like children or the Pharisee or the widow, the blind man is persistent. But not only that, he asks from a place of utter dependence. Even the blind man seems to understand the gravity of his request. And unlike the rich young ruler, the blind man seems to be asking Jesus to do something for him that he knows is impossible for him to do for himself. The rich young ruler asked, what must I do? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, there's this whole business of why the rich young ruler calls Jesus good, but I don't think we need to make too much of it. Jesus wasn't denying his deity. He was just challenging this young man to think careful, carefully about what he's saying. The bottom line is when Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He was saying, are you calling me God? Because you just asked me a question. And I want you to think long and hard about the authority from which I'm getting ready to answer you, son. Are you really calling me God? Because if you don't like my answer, you're going to have a tough decision to make. Are you going to surrender and follow me and let me go do what I'm on my way to go do for you? 
Or are you going to keep serving yourself and remain committed to your legalism and keep trying to figure out how to fill that hole in your heart all by yourself? Because getting right with God on your terms is an impossible mission. So why do you call me good? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Ty, we pull up that next slide? I want you guys to look at this as I read from Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When you, when you think about the Ten Commandments, I want you to think about them in two tables. A table of four and a table of six. The first four are about how we're to love God and the last six are about how we're to love each other. Now, Luke isn't the only place where we see the rich young ruler. All three synoptic gospels include the story, but when you look at the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke all capture Jesus' response, you notice something interesting. In all three gospel accounts, Jesus answers the rich young ruler from the second set of six, but none of them include the commandment not to covet. Not in a single account do we see Jesus telling him not to covet. And I'll be honest, this one was curious to me. I I spent some time on that question, and I came up short. I I still don't have an answer. So if any of you know, come see me later and let let me know. It's bugging me. But I don't think it matters. What matters is that Jesus is clearly answering him from the second table of the law. And then the rich young ruler responds. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. Oh, all right. So if you know the law and you've kept it, why are you here talking to me? Because he was empty. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. But within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Now, Jesus is probably sitting there thinking, you don't love God or your neighbor. You don't love God because you aren't willing to follow me, and you clearly don't love your neighbor because you aren't willing to share your stuff with those in need. But Mark's account tells us Jesus loved him. So instead of rubbing the ruler's nose in his naivete, he just backs off and takes a different approach. Okay, so you think you got the second table of the law licked, do you? Well, clearly you missed my sermon on the mount. But that's okay. Let's just flip to the first table of the law. And this time, we'll just take one, the very first one. Do you have any other gods before me? Now, that's not the way the master said it. What he said was, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Money was his God, because when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And if you really think about it, if money is his God, then he has an idol he's serving, number two. Furthermore, the rich young ruler doesn't believe Jesus is God, and yet he's calling this guy good. So really, he's a blasphemer, too. 
And what he can't seem to figure out is the man standing in front of him is God in the flesh. The rich young ruler is seeking rest from his legalism. And it's literally standing right in front of him in bodily form. So clearly, the rich young ruler doesn't truly understand the Sabbath either. Man, it's not looking good for him. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Please don't get this twisted. Like I said early on, this isn't about money. So if you're sitting there right now thinking, well, I'm broke. So I don't need to worry about this rich young ruler guy. Wrong. Wrong because you're still a sinner in need of a savior that needs to rehearse the gospel every single You might not have wealth as a stumbling block, but if you're a human being, you've got something in your life that's constantly fighting to occupy that throne in your heart. Remember to ask. First and foremost, keep asking Jesus to come back. But while we wait, faithfully, ask God to help you resist those temptations, obediently and humbly trusting in him and what he did on the cross for you because you couldn't do it. Jesus did it. It's done. Jesus completed the mission and said, it is finished. Jesus is the real rich young ruler. He was young. Jesus was young. Tom Brady was 27 when he made those comments. Jesus wasn't much older than that when he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. What's a Super Bowl? He's also rich. He's the founder of the universe and owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Jesus is the God-man. Because of sin, there is a chasm that exists between us and God. We as mere mortals are indebted to an eternal God. Mortal man separated from an eternal God and we're all trying to figure out how to close the gap. But it's impossible. That's what Jesus meant when he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The only one that can bridge that gap is Jesus, the God-man. That's why he said no one comes to the Father except through me. Because he's the one that made the impossible possible. The rich young ruler was the ideal religious candidate. He was wealthy which the Israelites believed to be a sign of God's favor. He was zealous for the law. He sought out Jesus. I mean, this guy looked pretty good. That's why those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. You can't approach Jesus on your terms. You can't bring anything to the table. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul said, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. You must understand your need and then ask, especially if you're not a believer. We're we're not going to settle the the Calvin and Arminian debate today. But one thing I can tell you with confidence is if you feel God working in your life, if you feel him talking to you, drawing you towards him, please lean into that and ask. Ask Jesus to perform an impossible mission and save you from your sin. John 3.8 tells us the spirit of God is like the wind. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I have no idea how God might be speaking to you, but if you feel his Spirit blowing through your heart, ask. It's impossible, but do it. Ask. Ask Jesus to do for you that which you can't do for yourself, to redeem you. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It's impossible, but do it. Ask. Ask Jesus to be the shepherd of your heart and then follow him. I don't know what your hang up is or where you are in life. I don't know what you've got going on in your heart. But if there's a war raging in there, the peace is in the surrender. Give up all that you have and allow your identity to be in Christ and don't be overtaken by the world and what it tells you. Because if what sits on the throne of your heart is your racial identity or your sexual orientation or your perceived gender or whatever, if you're holding on to something thinking God's going to cut some special deal with you on your terms, you couldn't be more wrong. And if you think you've got something figured out and you're working, you're working on your flaws so you can make things right with God, I'm here to tell you you're laboring in vain. And I want you to remember the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Don't leave Jesus out in the cold. If you hear him knocking on the door of your heart, ask. Ask Jesus to come in and eat with you, and he will. I promise you that. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, uh, we love you and all that you've done uh, for us because of what we're not capable of doing, Lord. Thank you for being the real rich young ruler, for divesting yourself of all your privilege and all your resources and coming down here with us and living a perfect life and then exchanging the thing just so that we might live and have eternal life right now as we wait to be with you in eternity. Lord, continue to be the Lord of our hearts. And if there's anyone in here that you're talking to this morning, if they feel that wind blowing through their heart, Lord, lead them to some of the people around here that are there to 
talk to them. They can come find me. Brad Williams is in the back. There's, there's people everywhere. Just, just guide them to someone, Lord. But, but seek us out. If, have us be your vessel. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.